dehydrated water and trail mix. One of the biggest comforts and blessings in my life for about a period of three, three and a half years was dehydrated water and trail mix. What on earth is dehydrated water, you ask? Lifesavers. Lifesavers are dehydrated water. You go and you get yourself a nice, this one happens to be the cherry dehydrated version. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm also partial to the, um, um, oh my goodness, it just, butterscotch. I'm partial to butterscotch and I'll, I'll tell you more about that later. But you, my dad should have purchased stock in the Lifesavers company based upon how many boxes of Lifesavers he bought over those years. In fact, my wife has blessedly continued the tradition, and in my stocking each year, I get a box of Lifesavers, for which I am very thankful that my wife has blessedly continued that tradition of my dad. Continuing. Lifesavers. We would go on hikes with Boy Scout Troop 328, and we went on every mountain in the mountains surrounding Los Angeles. We went up and down the Sierras. We would go sometimes 20 miles in a day. And we would pack various comforts for our trip. We packed, for example, dehydrated ice cream. Yes, it was as awful as it sounds. We would pack our Thermarest self-inflating mattresses. We would pack our low-sitting nylon web chair. And we would pack our dehydrated water and trail mix. We needed these comforts because they were an enormous boost to tired feet and longing hearts. And while we were hiking, we would suck on our lifesavers, and our thirst would be somewhat quenched until we could get to the real thing. Of course, comfort in this sense is different than the lazy boy kind of comfort that we see on TV. Now, a nice chair, some hot coffee, some tea is not lost on me. But something about a tall shot of cold water or a little lifesavers and a little shade was the comfort that made me press on toward the goal of the upward call of the next mountain as opposed to making myself soft and wishing for most more comfort. Usually, if not always, this kind of comfort that pushes you on towards a higher goal is the kind of comfort that the Bible talks about. Not the lazy boy pain avoidance, but the energy boosting kind of comfort that enables you to press on to greater heights of love for your near ones. This, in fact, is exactly the kind of comfort that Paul offers in our passage tonight as we learn to cause joy with sacrificial love. Listen to the Word of God 
in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation with the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now Paul laid out in his chief command in chapter 1, verse 27. We spent the last two weeks talking about it, introducing this idea of living worthy of the good news. Now the rest of the letter is in a sense an exposition of this phrase. Chapter 2 in particular is a testimony. It is a picture of how Jesus, then Paul, then Timothy, then Epaphroditus live this worthy life worthy of the good news of Christ. And one of the ways we see tonight that Paul lives worthy of this life is by rejoicing. Rejoicing rightly. Rejoicing in the joy that the Philippians and the Santa Marians who read the letter to the Philippians will rejoice with because they see the example of those who are living worthy of the good news. In fact, it's more than that. This is, it turns out to be a big theme in Paul's writings. We see in our verse here, chapter 2, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. I take it that means rejoicing. And Paul clearly identifies one of the goals of his ministry is to rejoice in the unity of the brothers and sisters in Christ. Which is one of the things we emphasized last week in verse 25. I will remain and continue with you all for your joy. But then even more clearly, in 2 Corinthians 1.24, he says, we work with you for your joy. But in the passage we will get to in a couple weeks, Paul clarifies one of the main purposes of the body of Christ as we experience it today is chapter 2, verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You may remember as I introduced this letter several weeks ago now, one author said that a theme that you could communicate Philippians with is this idea, I rejoice, therefore you rejoice. Now, I don't think that's the whole story, but it's a big part of the story, as we will see tonight and in the remaining weeks. You see, Philippians is rightly called the letter of joy. And while we call Philippians the letter of joy, we see that Paul was in prison while he was writing this letter of joy. So the joy that Paul exhorted upon us is not the kind that we have when our favorite team wins. You don't get that in jail. The joy was and is one that is caused by sacrifice. The joy Paul calls us to partake in is the joy that is caused by love. Remember, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And love, according to John Piper, is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. 
And I think if he were here right now, he would be happy to have the word sacrifice for the needs of others inserted into his quote. So here's our big idea tonight. You and I must cause joy with sacrificial love. We must cause joy to those who love Jesus around you and in the world. Okay, great. How do we go about doing that? Well, Paul suggests sacrificial love. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathies, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Now, I want us to note as we break into his, this passage, first of all, that contrary to what you would expect of Paul, as he is arguing for us for joy, and, and this joy that is caused by sacrificial love, at first, his argument is not based upon reason. Paul's argument in verse 1 is that Christians pursue unity and joy based upon emotion. Look with me how he appeals to your experience with God. He says, if there is any encouragement of Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy. And as rational as Paul is, and we all have read enough of his works to know that he is very rational, as rational as Paul is, he understands the reality of emotions, especially those emotions that are rightly related to experienced reality, to the reality that really exists for those who love Jesus. He understands the power of those emotions, and he is not above what Jonathan Edwards calls right affections. Using emotions rightly based, appropriately based on the love of God so that we will be motivated to get into a closer fold, a closer relationship that God wants us to have as, and experience as His children. So for example, Christian, do you have any encouragement in Christ? Do you have any comfort from His love? Do you experience participation in the, in the Spirit? Has your heart, have your emotions been tied with other believers near you? Well, of course they have. You wouldn't be sitting here if they hadn't. Therefore, press on in this unity is Paul's argument. And he's basing this on our experience with God, our experience with our brothers and sisters, and the emotions that rightly push us forward closer to God. But note also that Paul here stays consistent with what we saw last week. And it was this unity, and that we found out this unity last week was a gift. It is a gift of God that we experience by grace. Now, is this an emotional argument? Well, perhaps that's too strong of a term. Certainly, it is an experiential argument. One that is based upon how we experience God. And, 
it is not the end of the story. The very next verse lands Paul squarely in the realm of the rational. He says, based upon this experience you've had with God, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I want you to notice two things as we get into his argument proper. The first is that, as is often the case in Paul, verses 2, 1-4 through four, is a single sentence. Yes, Paul would not be a teacher's pet in anybody's English class. But we see, number two, is that the main verb, and in this case, the central idea of this paragraph, is found right off the top in verse 2. Two, complete my joy. And this joy comes when believers are of the same mind. Again, unity. This letter is nothing if it's not an appeal to unity. And this being of the same mind, this mind that Paul has in mind here, sorry, is rooted in a common experience of God's grace and the emotional attachment to God and the emotional attachment to your near ones that both Jesus and Paul and all of Scripture command you to have. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, Paul, that's fine. I'm supposed to pursue unity. I'm supposed to pursue unity with joy. But what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. He gives us four points here. First is pursue unity. He says in verse 2, having the same love and being of full accord and of one mind. By the way, it seems to me that if you pursued unity with the Bible-believing and Christ-honoring person around you, even if you disagreed on one or two things, if you pursued unity you would find no opponents in the body of Christ. But famously, Christians eat their wounded and we suffer the indigestion of a profound lack of unity even in this city. Go home and meditate on that for a while. Which would lead us to number two, how do we pursue this unity? How do we pursue this joy in unity? He says in verse three, forsake self-centeredness. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Number three, practice meekness. Also verse three says, count others more significant than yourselves. We'll get back to what meekness is in a moment. And lastly, in verse four, we're skipping ahead here, is love others like yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests. Boy, that's a sermon all by itself. But I want to get back to meekness. Because meekness is a challenging word. And you have heard people compare meekness to weakness. I think that's a poor analogy. I chose meekness here in light of Paul's statement, count others more significant than yourselves. But what does it mean exactly? Well, the word that here is uh, counting others more significant than yourselves. Meekness is strength that accommodates another's weakness. Now the word occurs 11 times in the New Testament. And seven of those 11 times by the ESV is translated gentleness. Gentleness. 
And you can see why it would be. Gentleness is a a word that we understand better. And if you're gentle with somebody, if you're giving them grace, you're giving them gentleness, then you can see how that would be a blessing. But meekness, I think, is a little more expansive than the idea of gentleness. And it's translated this way at least four times. Picture for yourself a well-trained horse. This horse is stronger than you by a hundredfold, at least, right? But that hundredfold stronger horse is willing to allow you to guide it with a little piece of leather. It's meek. And if you count others as more significant than yourselves, if you are going to consider their interests above your own, then it's not going to be a weakness of yours. In fact, it's going to be a strength. A strength that is provided by the Lord, as he says in Philippians 4.13, I can be meek to anyone through him who strengthens me. But what is needed? What is fundamental to this kind of meekness? What is absolutely central to the kind of sacrificial love that will bring joy to those who are near you is a change of mind. A complete reversal of everything the world teaches you. Which, by the way, might mean that we ought to be spending more time in God's Word so that we can absorb this rather than everything that the world is trying to get us to pursue. This change of thinking, this radical opposition to everything that the world tries to form us into its mold is the essence of what it means to trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The phrase that comes to mind when I think of this is dead to self. John the Baptist, I think, put this as simply as any in the many passages of Scripture that refer to this idea of death to self. In John chapter 30, he says, He must increase, but I must decrease. That is profound. And that is profoundly opposite of everything the world wants you to believe. Seize the gusto! Get everything you can and can everything you can get. Hold on to everything because if you don't, you're going to miss something. Or, he must increase and I must decrease. Dallas Willard puts it this way. It's one of my favorite quotes from him. Self-denial or being dead to self, is the condition where the mere fact that I do not get what I want does not surprise or offend me and has no control over me. 
wow, I have a long ways to go. Driving down the road, I have a long ways to go when it comes to this. When you can return sacrificial love, when you can return strength that accommodates someone else's weakness, when you can say of Christ, He must increase and I must decrease. When you can say, I will not be bothered by first world problems. And you have taken, by God's grace, an enormous step towards Christian maturity. And you will cause joy with your sacrificial love. But what comes next? Verses 3 and 4. Paul continues. The break here is kind of artificial. I just had to find a place to break it up. He says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now notice, Paul appeals to opposites in these two verses. There is a negative way of looking at sacrificial love, and there is a positive way of looking at this causing of joy. And he starts off with this contrast immediately. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now I, I confess, I struggled with this verse for a long time in my early years as a Christian. I struggled with it because there's at least two problems as I used to see it. One is ambition, and the other is count others more significant, or as the New Living Translations, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Let's start with ambition. Ambition is a tricky word. Normally, the way Christians use it, it's a bad word. We don't want to be ambitious. But do we want to be ambitious? Do we want to have goals and purposes that are above the mediocre? There is a such thing as godly discontentment. I recently asked a friend how he would define godly discontentment, and together we came up with something like this. Godly discontentment pursues godliness. Notice there is a stated goal, godliness, in a godly manner, trusting that God will take care of the results. The opposite, what we might call selfish ambition, pursues ends that do not put God first and foremost and is willing to sin to pursue those ends. That was what we came up with. Fortunately, fortunately, I have found when I have been listening to God, when I have cared and I've wanted to hear what He has to say, which is not always... But when I have wanted to, I have found that God the Spirit speaks to His children and we usually know whether we are pursuing godly discontentment or selfish ambition. And if we don't know which one that we are pursuing at that moment, a sure bet is to ask your wife because she often knows you better than you're willing to admit. 
you can take that any way you want. But the second thing I struggled with, what is this count others more significant? Well, I will say the ESV got the translation correct in this one. The point is not believing that others are better than you at something, say, basketball. I bet I could take more than half of you on a one-on-one a game of basketball. Let's go right now. The point is, rather, that you consider the other person's needs first. Now, it may also be that you say no to whatever it is they're asking because you have a global view of what is going on and you understand that you have others who depend upon you to provide for them. But... When you say no to someone else's needs, you must make this choice considering the good of more than just yourself. And let's face it. We don't very often intentionally choose to put others first. And so, by God's grace, you say, Lord... Help me. I want to be obedient to you in this area. Help me to put the other's interest, to make them to be more significant than myself. But my friends, this is both unnatural in the current state of affairs, and it is wonderfully refreshing when we count others as more significant than ourselves. I have found many, many, many times that the simplest, smallest gestures in this regard are often and usually greeted with great joy. Many of you in this room have refreshed and blessed me many times by mutual acts of love and i am so often humbled by you because you have caused me great joy with sacrificial love even in the very small things but finally fourth and the last ingredient which is also a summation of all these acts of love that bring joy is what we find in verse 4 Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Here's the bottom line. Here it is. If you are going to live worthy of the good news of Christ, if you are going to bring joy to, for example, Paul, who's writing this letter, through sacrificial love, then you are going to be one who has radically repented of every impulse of thought the world is continually seeks to put into your heart. Now, I want to remind you of something. Guess what? Okay. Actually, I should tell you, this is a secret, right? A secret is something you tell to everyone, one person at a time. So this is a secret. (laughs) You're going to blow it. Every one of you are going to blow it. We are not, as I just said, um, I lost it. We are not going to radically repent of every impulse of thought the world continually seeks to put into our heart. 
Are we? But how many, what percentage of the time do you think you're going to get it if you don't even try? What percentage of the time do you think you're going to have this radical repentance if you don't say, Lord, this is the way I want to live? What percentage of the time do you think you're going to have this kind of joy-causing, sacrificial love if you don't say to yourself, in this case, I need to consider that person's interests above my own? And we do it not because we grit our teeth and we're going to fight through this. We do it when we approach the Lord and say, Lord, do this through me. Do this through me. Because make no mistake, Paul is not asking for a piece of pie. He wants the whole ten-course meal. Every time. That's what's commanded. This is everything. And you can't give it. It only comes when you receive it as a gift. A magnificent work of God's power at work in you to bring about God's purposes in your heart. And you must choose it. The Bible calls it receiving. To those who receive, thank you, Jesus. I want to make this a part of me. You must choose, you must receive the gift of repentance like this so that others' good is your good. So that others' joy is your joy. So that you can gain from God the Spirit the wisdom to so choose that God's heart becomes more and more and more your heart. And thereby to cause joy with sacrificial love. Life's a journey. Life is a hike up and down mountains. Life is a trail that will wear the flesh off your feet and give you cramps and will dehydrate you. And as you're going down this trail, you need a measure of comfort. You need brothers and sisters who will refresh you, who will cause joy in your heart by their sacrificial love. And then you cause joy in their heart by your sacrificial love. You need a measure of joy. God knows this. And that's why He gives us the means to be that joy to others. Because gritting your teeth won't cut it. You need instead a source of joy that cannot fail. And this joy comes from an assurance. This joy comes from a hope in the sacrificial love of our Christ that He has already accomplished. You must first of all find your joy in Him as opposed to the stuff and the circumstances and the relationship that the world continually uses to press you into its mold. If you and I are going to be a comfort to others on this trail through the valley of the shadow of death, you will need not dehydrated water, although having a pack of lifesavers is not a bad idea. You will need the water 
of life that goes into your soul and it becomes a fountain that does not cease. If you are going to be a lifesaver as you go down this trail through the valley of the shadow of death, then you are also going to be one who gives of yourself first, which is exactly what Christ showed us. And make no mistake, Paul did not put the next section of Philippians 2 there by accident. He wants us to, he wants us to see that sacrifice and what it did for us and, by the way, what that sacrifice did for Christ. Which is exactly what we will examine next time. We will see how our joy and the joy of the Holy Trinity was made by, was caused by sacrificial love. And Lord Almighty, once again, we confess that we cannot do this of ourselves, but we know that it is a work of God the Spirit in us and through us and for us so that we will live lives worthy of the good news of Jesus. Lord, do this in us this week for Jesus' sake and in His name we pray. Amen.